Good morning. Let's begin with a word of prayer. God, thank you for the gift of today and for the privilege of being able to gather like this and to learn more about you, to study your word, and to draw closer to one another and to you. God, I pray that you would guide our time together, help it to be um, an uplifting and time of refocusing on you and renewing our, our um, relationship with you. pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So as some of you know, last week I was, well, the last two weeks I've been gone, but last week specifically, I was at the literature camp that the Curator, which is a website that I do some work for, um, puts on. And it's exactly what you'd imagine. We sit around speaking in Shakespearean lines and do nothing but read. No, that's not true. But <laughs> it was a good time. And um, a very refreshing time and a time where I don't know quite how to explain how re-centering it felt for me in so many ways. And so what I'm going to be sharing this morning is just a conglomeration of the things that have been going through my mind in the past week. And I hope that it all makes sense and that it's something that you can take something away. The, there's something you can take away from it as well. Um, one of the things that, questions that was addressed there is why are we here? We, we like to take the small questions. <laughs> no, and obviously this is a huge thing that there's really not a simple answer for. But in order to answer this, we kind of need to go back to the very beginning. Why are we here? Why would God put us on this ball of rock and mud and water spinning through space? What's the point? Why would he do this for us? I think that the root of the answer is to demonstrate redemption to us and to demonstrate resurrection and the power of God's goodness to us. Thinking back all the way to the beginning, there we read in Genesis 1 that the earth was formless and void. It was nothing and broken and dark and all these things. And God spoke and there was life that came from that. He did a, he, there was a redeeming act that happened even in that moment of creation. And he looked at that world that he created and he called it good. And we now are living in that creation. Then, after he created this and called it, well, part of this creation was Adam and Eve, who we are descended from. And they were created in his image to be, well, image bearers of God here on this ball of earth that he created. Simplifying the story a great deal, they sinned and there were lots of consequences to that. <laughs> and we live feeling the effects of those consequences, and yet we still live on this place that God called good, and that he, in a way, even in that initial act of creation, redeemed. He made something good out of it. When sin entered the world, um, God could have um, scrapped it and started over, and in a way he did that with the flood, but when, when man fell, it created yet another opportunity for God to redeem things. Throughout all of human history, God has been just continually redeeming things. First, he redeemed this formless and void thing and made it good and had life. Then people sinned, and again, he used that as an opportunity to bring forth goodness and life and offer the plan of salvation. In a broad sense, that's what he did. He he redeemed this sinfulness by giving us an opportunity, by facilitating a way for the people that came after Adam and Eve to come back to him. This broad redemption that he offers also has a very targeted and specific application to us and everyone who chooses to follow Christ. His act of redemption began at creation continued with his offering a solution to the sin that the people brought into the world and messed things up. But then it also comes down to us individually as well. 
that formless and voidness of the earth before creation, I don't know how many of you can relate to that in your own lives at times, feeling this aimlessness and darkness and formlessness even. And yet God looks at that much as he did the earth and gives us a way and makes a way of redeeming that and bringing life from formlessness and emptiness. And in the end, he looks at that and also says it is good. We are justified by these, by these acts of redemption that Christ offers to us. So, the question, why are we here? I'm not sure if this is a... It's, it's, defi- it's certainly not a um, conclusive, all-encompassing answer. But I do believe that a significant part of our calling as people who are following Christ is to bring redemption to the world around us in ways that we can. We are created in God's image, and he placed in us that same, it's obviously the scope is different, but that ability to take nothing and make something and to redeem darkness around us. We have that ability as well. Obviously, we can't forgive sins. We can't, it's not, it's not the same scope. We are in the image of God. We are not God himself. So, how do we redeem our little corners of the world in the day-to-day? We aren't created just to be passive parts of God's creation and redeemed and have our ticket stamped to heaven, and now we just kind of wait for that. Finally, we can experience that redemption. We are called to also redeem and bring goodness to the world around us. Now, keep in mind the context that these thoughts are coming from. It was from a group of writers and artists and things like that. And I don't know, it feels weird to like self-define yourself as someone who appreciates that stuff, but I do. I appreciate things that are well-written, things that are beautiful. I enjoy singing. I enjoy seeing people's artwork that they create. And I think that there is a significance to the fact that God created us in his image and that part of his image is a creative one. And my challenge for you all is that we don't take that for granted and belittle that part of, our, of the image that God has given us. It's something that often I think that our world around us today has conditioned us to, there are the people that are good at things. Like there are the writers, there are the, all these people that are good at the things, and then there's the rest of us. And the rest of us are basically here to like consume the things that the other people make. And that's kind of, that's sort of how the world works. And I think that, well, to some extent that's true. I enjoy reading something that's well-written and well-presented as much as anybody. There is still a specific calling for the rest of us. I hate that term. I didn't write that down. I'm not sure why it came to mind. (laughs) That is one that um, we are to lean into and embrace. And in doing this, we are able to bring redemption to the world in some sort of way. This can be anything. It can be in the way we, well, it can be in deciding to sit down and make a painting even though we don't really know how to paint, but getting those paints out and making something beautiful out of something where there was not goodness there before. It can be in rearranging our bookshelves, maybe, like making order out of this chaotic thing. It can be in create, in making a meal in a way that is not purely just utilitarian, but recognizing the goodness of, thank you, Lord, for helping us to have all that we need. Even things like singing together are an act of creation. It's a, it's a, it's a bringing out of nothing. We're just in a space together, and words and music happen, and then they go away, and that particular creation that we made will not happen again in that particular way ever again because of the particular set of people and the ways that we interacted in that. We, in worshiping God together, bring a moment of light out of darkness. These are things that are worth investing in and recognizing for what they are. When I say investing in, I don't mean studying and needing to become good at the things, but they are things that are worth 
pursuing at whatever point of life we are in. Um, appreciating a well laid out flower bed is always worthwhile. And it's another place where somebody took a patch of dirt and made something beautiful out of it. Fulfilling God's purpose of bringing redemption to small little areas of our lives. As I mentioned, I was at this literature camp. And one thing that we do as a organiza an organization is we put out, we publish poetry by Anabaptists. And there was a poem that we just published that I'm going to share with you. And it's kind of long, but I want to, and I will prime it so that you can sort of follow what the, story, what, what the poem is about. It's entitled, On Writing Another Christmas Poem. And basically, it is the author struggling with the fact of what is the point of me even, it was around Christmas and we were asking for Christmas-related submissions. And we got a submission that was basically like, why would I even bother? People have said all the things there are to say about Christmas and how beautiful this incarnation of Christ is. So what is the point even? But in the poem, the, the main character, if you will, it's written from a first-person perspective. So the author realizes that darkness does not simply state its lie once and then retreat. It repeats it and repeats it in different ways and in unique ways and in ways that um, perpetuate the nastiness that is the darkness. And so why not us as well? People who know the truth and see the truth, why should we not look for continual ways to um, restate the truth and bring it, make it beautiful and something relatable? And then because of this realization, um, she begins to write about the beautiful ordinary. That's a quote from it. Um, the beautiful ordinary things and the ways that we are redeemed. Anyway, I will go ahead and read that for you all. And I hope that, well, I'll, I'll, I'll make more comments then afterwards. So this is on trying to write a Christmas poem. There's nothing left to say that's not been said a hundred times before by better tongues or fingers than my own, and maybe yours. No songs to sing that haven't yet been sung by choirs and soloists and saxophones. In picturesque old ruins by forest streams. A hundred chapels, same songs. Anyway, you've heard them too, and you know what I mean. Yet, uncreative darkness never tries, never tires of drumming its black-suited words and worse, whispered misshapen shades of things to come. Supplied to our taught souls as cold as a curse. A pestilence among us in the dark is not new. Just ask the 14th century. Or the last. As for governments gone rogue, they crawl through history books as thick as fleas. While the enemy, well, let the enemy show us doggedness. And while the dark pounds its monotonous drum. Bring on the common goodness, common love, the worn out ordinary. Let them come. Set out your candles on the windowsills. Repeat the curtsies you learned at two. Sing gorgeous carols sung on snowy streets by merry gentlemen that Shakespeare knew. With common loveliness, the world is rich. So rich that some would call its naming trite. But only this copper coin, by, on, but by only this copper coin, joy is bought. And sets the candles of the stars alight. So as for us, let us repeat our prayers and stack our wood and cut our evergreens by common kindness of the brooding, by common kindness, the brooding dark is kept, kept at bay. Great things begin unseen. A shepherd sings a folk song by his fire. A flower buds blood red among the thorn. And in this topsy-turvy starry night, out in a barn, the kingdom shall be born. As was mentioned at the very end, it, is in, it was in an ordinary place that the ultimate expression of this redemption in life came forth. It was in a barn, in a stable. And just as much we are able to bring life and show the light of Christ in ordinary ways, as was like putting your candles on your windowsill and recognizing the goodness of God for what it is. I'd like to close by reading 1 Corinthians 15, the end of the chapter, um, verses 51 through 
through 58. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. My challenge to you this morning is in the same way that that passage so victoriously proclaims the goodness of God and the way that death is swallowed up, let's find lots of little ways to swallow up the death and darkness in our world and bringing the light of Christ into that. It doesn't have to be in big or complicated ways, but looking to do it continually I believe, is one of the highest callings that we have as followers of Christ living today. Let's close with a word of prayer. God, you are good, and we thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, as we go through the rest of our weeks and um, go forward, I pray that you would lay on us a sense of your goodness to us, and an ability to recognize it for what it is when we see it, and that in living in the world and interacting with people, that we would be able to be reflections of your light and find ways of showing that light to others in the everyday and in the ordinary. Bless the rest of our service. Bless everyone who is involved. I pray that you would just be with us and guide uh, the rest of our time together. Thank you for your goodness to us, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Good morning. This morning I want to think briefly with you about Elisha's call. God called Elisha to be Elijah's replacement or to follow the, the prophet Elijah. And I've been thinking this week about Elisha's call. To give you a brief background of, of what's happening, I'm just going to uh, give you a very brief summary of what's happening in, the, in several chapters previous. I'm going to 1 Kings this morning and briefly summarizing like, uh, chapters 17, 18, 19. Um, just to get a feel for what's, what's been happening when Elisha was called. This is a, a very difficult time for the people of Israel. Um, Ahab is king, and he is a very wicked king. It says he, in verse 30 of chapter 16, it says, Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. This was a rough time, and he, through Jezebel, his wife, established uh, Baal worship and a number of other false gods. But Baal worship was very dominant in, in Israel at this time. And <clears throat> so you have Elijah who comes, and, and God works through Elijah to bring a great victory on Mount Carmel. You're familiar with the story? He challenges the prophets of Baal to come, and uh, they each build an altar, and the God who answers with fire is the true God. The Baal worshipers can't get any response from Baal, who they believe is so powerful, and you know the story. God answers with fire. Fire falls from heaven. 
burns up the sacrifice Elijah has on the altar, burns up the water, burns up the altar. It just, there is no question what happened and who did it. The people fall on their faces and say, the Lord, he is God. After this great victory, you would think Elijah's pretty pumped. Well, then also, I, I failed to mention that God had told Elijah to tell King Ahab there will be no rain for three years, three and a half years. Uh, there was no rain until Elijah gave the word from God that there would again be rain. Baal was supposedly caused rain and brought fertility to the soil. So there's no rain for three and a half years as God demonstrated who really controls the rain. At God's word, Elijah told them it would rain, that there's rain coming. And so the drought is, is broken. Well, here, after this happens, Queen Jezebel wasn't there. And when Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, this is uh, chapter 19, verse 1, and how he had executed all the prophets of Baal with the sword. Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So let the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So look at what the lady's doing. Instead of sending an executioner there and taking his head off, she sends a messenger and says, I'm going to kill you by tomorrow at this time. She wants to strike terror in his heart. And it worked. The prophet Elijah, who had just demonstrated the power of God, God through him had showed his power, ran from the queen. And he didn't stop running the next 40 days and 40 nights. And he was, he runs and runs until he gets to the mountain of God, as it was known, Mount Horeb or Mount Sinai. And it's there that he's discouraged, despondent, depressed, you could say. He wanted to die. He says, take my life, Lord. He's done. Thinks it's pointless for him to go on. And he says several times that in chapter 19 that he is the only one left. I'm going to jump in and at uh, 1 Kings 19 and verse 14. I'm just going to read the remainder of 19 and uh, then jump to 2 Kings. 1 Kings 19, 14. This is Elijah speaking. And he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. Notice God's response. Then the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you arrive, anoint Hazel as king over Syria. And you shall also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel. And Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mola, you shall anoint as prophet in your place. It shall be that whoever escapes the sword of Hazel, Jehu will kill, and whoever escapes the sword of Jehu, Elisha will kill. Yet I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So he departed from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he was with the 12th. Then Elijah passed by him and threw his mantle on him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother, and then I will follow you. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So Elisha turned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slaughtered them and boiled their flesh, using the oxen's equipment, and gave it to the people when they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and became his servant. Jumping to Second Kings chapter 2. So where we continue this story. Second Kings chapter two. And it came to pass, let me just make a comment that there's a there are several years 
that go by. I don't know the exact amount of time, but several years are between these two chapters. So we end with, with Elisha arising, following Elijah, becoming his servant. He remains his servant several years in chapter 2 of 2 Kings. And it came to pass when the Lord was about to take Elijah up into heaven by a whirlwind, that Elijah went with Elijah from Gilgal. Then Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? And he said, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Elisha, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho came to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that, your that the Lord will take away your master from over you today? So he answered, Yes, I know. Keep silent. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, please, for the Lord has sent me on to, to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. And fifty men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance, while the two of them stood by the Jordan. Now Elijah took his mantle and rolled it up and struck the water, and it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was, when they had crossed over, that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, Please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. So he said, You have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. Then it happened, as they continued and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried out, My father, my father the chariot of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. And he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when also he had struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. Then they said to him, Look now, there are fifty strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send anyone. But when they had urged him until he was ashamed, he said, Send them. Therefore they sent fifty men, and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? <clears throat> Excuse me. Then the men in the city said to Elisha, Please notice the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the ground barren. And he said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And he went out to the source of the water and cast the salt in there and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. So the water remains healed to this day, according to the word of Elisha, which he spoke. Then he went up from there from Bethel, and as he was going along the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him and said to him, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. So he turned around, looked at them, and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. Then he went from there to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. I'd like to go back <clears throat> excuse me, and notice a couple things in 1 Kings 19, the last few verses. 
excuse me just a minute while I get water. <laughs> Got a frog in my throat. <clears throat> Notice in the last part of 1 Kings chapter 19, when Elijah is discouraged, depressed, says to God, take my life. He wants to die. While Elijah is feeling that way, God is already at work preparing Elisha. He already has someone in mind. And he responds by telling him, go. And tells him where to go, where to find this man and names him. And says, anoint him to take your place. He is to be Elijah's disciple. Elijah didn't know or didn't recognize that God was already at work behind the scenes. And God still had work for Elijah to do. David Roper said, The old prophet thought his work was done when in fact he was about to enter into his most enduring work helping to shape a young man whom God intended to use for the next 50 years. I want to say to you that if we're here, there's work for us to do. None of us are useless even if we feel like we are. And God can direct us into what that work can be. Maybe it won't look like it did in the past. But God can direct us where he wants us and in useful work for his kingdom. In verses 19 to 21, the, the call of Elisha, I'd like to just notice a couple things. One, Elisha's name means God is salvation. That tells me he probably had God-fearing parents in the middle of a culture that had largely forsaken God and turned to Baal, worshiping idols. Elisha must have had parents that feared God to give him the name God is salvation. We see Elijah finds Elisha plowing the field. His parents must have been fairly wealthy to have 12 yoke of oxen and he's plowing with the twelfth, so apparently there are eleven men in front of him plowing. <clears throat> Elijah just walks up behind Elisha and throws his camel hair mantle over his shoulders and keeps on walking. There's no recorded conversation. But you know, in that culture, he wouldn't have needed any conversation, anyone watching what happened would have known what was, what was occurring. They would have known, actually, let me just quote, Sir John McComb wrote, when a great teacher died, he bequeathed his patched mantle to the disciple he most esteemed, and his mantle was his all, and its transfer marked out his heir. I don't think there was any question in anyone's mind what Elijah intended when he threw his mantle over Elisha. It was a clear call to follow him, to learn from him, to be his servant, to be his heir. I think it was as, as clear to them as when Jesus in the New Testament walked by the Sea of Galilee and said, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. He was asking them to leave everything to live with him, go where he went, stay with him, learn from him, be a disciple. Elisha was faithfully working for his father when he was called. I believe God was developing character in Elisha while he was working for his father. God was working inside Elisha to make him the man he wanted him to be. And when it was time to serve somewhere else, God made it very clear. And when that call came, notice how Elisha 
makes a clean break with his past. He takes the oxen he was plowing with, and the plow and the yoke. He kills the oxen and takes the, the plow and the yoke and uses that to, to cook the meat. He asked to go back to kiss his parents goodbye. He apparently has a feast with his family and friends. He didn't leave any room for going back. The, what he was working with, there was a clear shift here. He wasn't saying to someone, hey, take my place for a couple weeks and I'll decide if I want to do this. I'll go feel it out, and then I'll come back and take over behind the plow again. No. He got rid of the plow. He made clear he was committed to following God by following Elijah. Followed God's call wholeheartedly. I think it's important to notice that he did follow. He had a choice. When that mantle fell on his shoulders and he was there working, I doubt whether he knew what was coming. But when that mantle was thrown over his shoulders, he now had to make a choice. Do I say, no, no, take it for somebody else, not me. I'm not available. I'm too busy. Can't you see? Got 11 men here working. I, I can't just shut this down. Dad counts on me. But he didn't. He ran after him and stopped him and asked, can he go back to say farewell to his parents? Come, I, you know, it, Elijah's response is interesting. In verse 20, he says, go back again, for what have I done to you? Some translations say, go back again, but consider what I have done to you. Think about it. Don't just make some decision off the cuff, but think it through. Make a commitment. Count the cost would be another way of saying it. He could have said no to the call, but he didn't. He followed. You and I must also choose. Choose to follow Christ. We can say no. To our detriment. We can say yes and follow Christ. For the next several years of his life, that was Elisha's life. He followed Elijah. You know, Elijah became a servant. When he was called, he was out plowing, probably with servants. He moved from a, a wealthy landowner's family, probably a privileged son, to being the servant. In fact, he's described in 2 Kings chapter 3 and verse 11, describes Elisha as the one who poured water on the hands of Elijah. It's another, it's a description of being a servant. He attended to Elijah's physical needs. You could see it as a step down. He was willing to be a servant. Stephen Kang said, unless we are willing to do insignificant things, faithfully, joyfully, carefully, as unto the Lord, we will never fulfill our special ministry. I'm going to repeat that. I, I paused and read that several times. I like that quote. Unless we are willing to do insignificant things, Faithfully, joyfully, carefully, as unto the Lord, we will never fulfill our special ministry. Being willing to serve. Too often, if I look at myself too often, I say, Lord, I'll follow you to that place, but not to this place. Or, I'll serve you this way, but not that way. Unfortunately, I can give you an example from my own life that I'm ashamed of. When Ivan and I were ordained, or just before we were ordained here, 
I was trying to bargain with the Lord. I said, Lord, I'll mow the church lawn. I'll do anything. Just don't ask me to preach. I'm not available for that. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit convicted me of my arrogance. And I repented. I have no business telling God how I will serve Him or not serve Him. It is my privilege to serve Him in whatever way He chooses. You know, in the New Testament, when Jesus' disciples realized that Jesus was headed to the cross, what happened? They scattered. They disappeared. When they saw Jesus was headed to the cross. They didn't want that. The road, to the road of discipleship will always lead to the cross. The road of discipleship leads to death of self-will. Luke 9, 23, Jesus said, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross daily and follow me. I think the call to serve and the call to discipleship are one. One and the same. Going to Second uh, Kings, chapter two. And you notice in verse one, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, the time comes. For all of us to die, or in Elijah's case, he was taken, taken up to heaven. None of us is indispensable. Elisha probably, I don't know how he felt. I could imagine if I were in Elisha's shoes, I would feel so attached to Elijah by now, I would think I can't go on without him. If I've seen God working in powerful ways through Elijah, and I've been following him for these years, it would be tough to think of going on without him. But God was still there. And God was there for Elisha, just like he was for Elijah. In verses 2, 4, and 6, Elijah says to Elisha, Stay here, please. I'm told by those who know much more than I do about the, the original language that in the original language, it's not a command, but it's giving permission. He has permission to stay behind. You don't have to go on with me. But each time, Elisha refuses to be left behind. He says he will go with him. He knew that the time was approaching that it was very close when Elijah would be taken from him. This was no small trip on foot. From, they moved from Gilgal to Bethel, from Bethel to Jericho, and from there to the Jordan River. From Gilgal to Bethel is over eight miles. From Bethel to Jericho is 14 miles. And this wasn't in a Toyota minivan. So this, this took a lot of effort to get there. And so he gives him permission each time. You don't, have to, you don't have to keep on walking. But Elijah's determined to be with him. He knew that often at someone's death, they blast them, blast their children, their heir. I think Elisha wanted, needed that blessing. So from Gilgal to Bethel is 8 miles, Bethel to Jericho is 14, and Jericho to the Jordan is about 5 miles. That's about 27 miles 
of walking. What would Elisha have missed if he hadn't persistently followed? I think I need to be persistent in following Christ. I can't give up because it's hard or because it takes a lot of energy. In verse 9 of chapter 2, He's followed him to each, oh, I should, I should mention, each of these uh, places that Elijah stopped, there was actually a school for, the, uh, for young prophets in each of these locations, Gilgal, Bethel, and Jericho. And apparently, Elijah was traveling to each of those places to encourage the sons of the prophet, as they're called here, before, his, before he was taken. In verse 9, so he's followed him through each of those places. He's walked with him over 27 miles and then crossed the river and they walk more. And as they're, and then as they're walking, he asked Elijah, I'll just read it. And so it was when they crossed over, Elijah said to Elisha, ask, what may I do for you before I'm taken away? Elisha said, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. What a wide open question. Ask, what do you want me to do for you? It's like handing someone a blank check. What do you want? I have a customer who regularly tells me, Nate, I'm happy to pay you. I don't mind paying you. Whatever you want to do, just do it, and I'll write you a check. Well, frankly, that makes me nervous. <laughs> While I'm very glad to work for her, it makes me a little nervous because I want to make sure that I'm worthy of her trust. I don't want to spend my time. I work hourly for her, and I don't want to spend my time on things she doesn't, that aren't important to her or that she doesn't want done. And I keep wondering, would she want this done? I would want this done, but would she? But whenever I ask her, she doesn't seem to want to be bothered. She just says... Nate, whatever you want to do, just do it, and I'll pay you. I don't want to take advantage of her trust. You know, Elijah trusted Elisha. He knew him well. They had been living together, and he trusted Elisha. He knew Elisha wouldn't make a selfish request, something that God wouldn't give him. Elisha didn't ask for wealth. He didn't ask for a camel so he could quit walking. He didn't ask for a nice house or a retirement fund. Might be a little nerve-wracking to be a prophet. Where's the money going to come from when I'm an old man? He didn't ask for anything like that. In fact, he didn't ask for anything physical. He asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. Elisha was asking really for what, for the right of a firstborn. The firstborn could receive a double portion of the father's estate. But really, Elisha, Elisha asked for spiritual strength and the ability to do what God had called him to do. He knew that he was to succeed Elijah. He had seen God work through Elijah, and Elisha knew he personally wasn't capable of doing what God was asking him to do. He couldn't make miracles happen. He couldn't predict. He couldn't tell what was going to happen in the future. Only God could do that. Elisha knew he was called to speak for God, and he knew he couldn't do it on his own. Elisha was asking God to equip him to work in him and through him. You know, you and I are invited to bring our requests to God. What are we asking for? What do we ask God for? Are my prayers more like, God, make me the person you want me to be. I'm committed to following you. Or are they more like, God, arrange my life the way I want it. 
Here's what I want you to do for me. We have the privilege of coming to Almighty God. What do you want to ask for? Now in verse 10, Elijah says, responds to to Elisha and says, you have asked a hard thing. Only God could grant Elisha's request. Elijah couldn't. What Elisha really asked for was God. And God is what Elisha really needed. It's what, he's what you and I need. If we don't recognize how much we need him, we're in deep trouble. Well, Elisha does see Elijah taken up into heaven. And it happened as they continued and talked. So they're walking along, talking, companionship, and suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up in a whirlwind into heaven. Can you imagine seeing this? What did it look like? You try to picture chariots and horses of fire in a whirlwind. Was it a tornado? I don't know. Possibly, but Elijah went by a whirlwind into heaven. God enabled Elisha to see the horses and chariots of fire. I had to think of Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivers them. We don't usually see him. But God surrounds those who fear him. And God opened Elisha's eyes so he could see horses and chariot of fire, Elijah going up. I think it's significant, verse 13, and it shows the kindness of God that he had Elijah's mantle fall. It's significant that Elijah, as Elijah was taken up in the whirlwind, his mantle falls back down. To Elisha. We're told Elisha picks it up and goes back to the Jordan. Again, he could have refused that, but he didn't. Elisha picked it up and went, and the mantle with all it symbolized. God was clearly confirming Elisha's call to be his spokesperson in Israel, to be his prophet. From verse 14 on to the end of, the, on to the end of, the, of chapter 2, it records three confirmations that Elisha was now God's prophet. You see the first in verses 14 and 15, where Elisha goes back and says, where is the God of Elijah? And strikes the water. And that cry was not a faithless cry, I don't believe but it was asking God to act for him. And God did. The water parts. It parts this way and that way, and he walks across on dry ground. It was witnessed by the 50 prophets who apparently are on a bluff at a distance and were able to see the river because we're told they saw Elijah and Elisha cross the first time, and they saw him cross, and they said, the spirit of Elijah is upon Elisha. They recognized God's hand on Elisha, and they recognized, they came and recognized him. They bowed before him. The second confirmation we see in verses 19 to 22, where the citizens of Jericho heard about what had happened, and they come to Elisha. They brought a problem to him. The main spring that supplied the city with water. They have a beautiful city, but the water isn't good. And people were dying from drinking this water, and the water, when they put it on the fields, it was killing the plants. And they asked Elisha to do something about it. God 
directed Elisha on what to, on what to do. He has them bring a new bowl with, filled with salt. And he goes to the source or to the spring and throws the salt in. Which verse is it to uh, in verse 21. Thus says the Lord, I have healed or purified this water. From it there shall be no more death or barrenness. And God heals the water supply for the city of Jericho through Elisha. Showing, again, confirming Elisha, but to show the people there, God cared about people. God cares about their situation, and He acted for them. Verse 22 tells us, the writer of 2 Kings says that the water is, remains healed to this day. And there are people who in recent times have been there and say they've tasted the water and it's still good water. And God does it. He does it right. There's a third confirmation in verses 23 and 24. There's a, a short story here that shows God's judgment on those who mocked God. These, these uh, let me just read 23 and 24. Then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up the road, some youths came from the city and mocked him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. He turned around and looked at them and pronounced a curse on them in the name of the Lord. And two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the youths. First of all, these were not children, as some translations have put it. The same word that's used to to describe these young men is a word used to describe Solomon when he was 20 years old. So, as Lawrence Richards said, the Hebrew word indicates young men who were adults and fully responsible for their actions. So these aren't innocent children. But these are, these are men, possibly 20s. The same word is used to describe a 20-year-old, well, Solomon when he was 20, and there was another person, I can't think who it was at the moment, who was 30 years old. So, but these are people who were fully responsible for their actions. And really, were they really mocking Elisha? I don't think they were mocking Elisha as much as they were God. Bethel is actually, Bethel is, means the house of God, but this area had become a stronghold for Baal worship. So in this stronghold for Baal worship, apparently there was an organized, apparently they organized to, to mock Elisha, if, if a bear mauled 42 of them, apparently there was more than 42, but here again, it confirmed Elisha was God's man. Elisha was God's prophet. thing that stands out to me is Elisha followed God and God confirmed his calling repeatedly. And my guess is Elijah needed that. Elisha, I'm sorry, I keep switching names. My guess is Elisha needed that like any of us would. Thinking back, looking at how Elisha followed God, and he, he followed in following Elijah, and he made a clean break with his past. He became a servant. I want to, I'd like to end this morning with, uh, with a song as my personal commitment. And you'll find that song in your Songs of Faith and Praise, 417, and I've asked Darren to Please come forward and lead us 
in that song. Notice what we're singing. Notice the commitment in this song. Following the song, you're dismissed.